You're listening to Life and Leadership, A Conscious Journey, the podcast that shares wisdom and strength. Join your host, Dr. Michelle St. Jane's weekly conversation on how to have a positive impact for people, planet, and the wider world. If you want to live a life of intention, be proactive with your time, and bring your vision for the future to life one today at a time, you are in the right place at the right time. Let's get started. Earth Day 2021, Bermuda, green country, blue economy. Earth Day was launched over 50 plus years ago. It supports environmental initiatives, drives transformative change for people and planet. The engagement of society and wider stakeholders is important because our earth, our home, is the heart of our well-being for our societies and our economies. More than a billion people in 192 countries participate in Earth Day activities. This is the largest civic observance in the world. My focus today is Bermuda. Why Bermuda? Well, Bermuda leans into a 500 plus years legacy of building through technology advancements, global conservation and environmental initiatives, providing the world with an evolving offering of resiliency, risk and climate solutions. The first engagement was in the 17th century. Socio and environmental concerns were evident and addressed early in the island settlement with the enactment of the first conservation law in the New World. In 1623, it reads, to protect the breed of tortoises by the licoriousness and wastefulness of many persons killed, our young and scared away. The law provides against this. Today, diligence is maintained through the Bermuda Turtle Project, which is in collaboration with other Caribbean islands, and Bermuda fosters her habitats and conservation for the populations of turtle that travels between our shores. Dr. Edward O. Wilson reminds us, the 21st century human has paleolithic emotions, medieval solutions, and godlike technology. Let's start a conversation around this. 2021, theme, restoring our earth. Today, I'm joined by Stephen Weinstein. He is elected Bermuda Business Development Agency Chair in 2020, and Bermuda has a long legacy of centuries in the game of being a country focused on conservation. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Michelle. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So Bermuda is a green country, continuing this climate and environmental legacy. What's your stand on this? How does the BDA support this? You're right. Bermuda has four centuries of environmental protection legacy. The first statute written in the Western Hemisphere, at least by uh, so-called Western civilizations, uh, dates back to 1610, one year after the settling of Bermuda in 1609. As a result of that, Bermuda has maintained a pristine and beautiful environment that both sustains and inspires its residents. While we have much to be proud of, we have much to build on and much to look forward to. Bermuda can and should grow in that legacy of environmental conservation and protection by continuing it, showing the world the example of how a small island jurisdiction can protect its land and water and air. But also Bermuda can serve an extremely important role going forward, Michelle, by fostering climate adaptation and climate transition. In addition to its four centuries of environmental protection, has half a century of leadership in finance, particularly in climate-driven natural catastrophe reinsurance. Bermuda is now seeking to grow very ambitiously into the most adjacent vertical, climate risk finance. And I'm confident that Bermuda can. We will play an important leadership role promoting adaptation, mitigation, and resilience. It's such a beautiful linkage with our own natural and beautiful environment at this tie between our business strategy and our own lived climate strategy is a nice energy to it and is really quite inspiring. 
Absolutely. Being a bit of a history buff, I was following the tortoise legislation and was quite delighted to see that when I was doing my doctorate, that we were demonstrating global leadership there. And there was also Sir Edwin Sandys, a member of the Bermuda Company. And I think around 16, 14, he came to the island, but he was very concerned about the social impacts as well as the environmental impacts. So quite forward thinking just from the settlement, start of settlement here as well. No, you're exactly right, Michelle. That very first legislation indeed was legislation to preserve the sea turtle population. And it was motivated in part by the ecological considerations of biodiversity, but also a recognition that by the bad environmental practices were imposed a human cost. And that the early settlers of lesser means who depended upon sea turtles for nourishment were harmed by the overutilization. So that tether, which was evident in Bermuda from the very beginning, that to promote social justice and health for its citizens, we had to have a climate strategy, has indeed been part of Bermuda's DNA from the very aftermath of its settlement. Absolutely. And King James I was very keen on setting up his settlements as companies as well. So we were the Bermuda Company and the Virginia Company was a lesson in risk management with the settlers almost starving. It was the shipwreck of the finding of Bermuda. They were sending food to that settlement, which was set up also as a plantation for tobacco, which Bermuda didn't quite work out at, as did it. Well, and they tried. Another little understood fact about Bermuda is that for the first several decades, the population of Bermuda, the European population of Bermuda, exceeded that of Virginia. And there are a range of reasons for that. But one reason was a more successful set of environmental strategies in Bermuda compared to the mainland settlements, at least for those first couple of decades. Yes, absolutely. And John Rolfe, who was sent to head up the tobacco plant, was on his way to Virginia to head up the tobacco plantation. His wife actually delivered his daughter on the island, who was the first born human being on the island. Sadly, they both died shortly thereafter. Of course, um, Rolf, rather than uh, Captain John Smith, went on to marry Pocahontas. So we can see Bermuda's already appearing on the global stage right from shipwreck. <laughs> You're managing the risk of the Virginia colony to being ambassadorial between different cultures in the UK with Pocahontas. That's absolutely right, Michelle. On the one hand, Bermuda is isolated. It's the second most isolated island in the world. And on the other hand, it's always been deeply connected from those stories from its founding days to today, where Bermuda is deeply interconnected, a responsible member of the family of world nations. And I think we understand as an island that no island really is an island, that the quality of our air and water depend upon outcomes and behaviors the world around. And also our economic prosperity depends upon events worldwide. I think living in Bermuda and running businesses from Bermuda, investing in Bermuda, on the one hand, focuses the mind because of the scale of the geographic territory in which you operate, but also expands it because it forces you to think globally in a way that's unique, I think, to island environments. Absolutely. We're a great example of this. And of course, um, with Earth Day 2021 being about restore the world's ecosystems, I saw in one of your articles, sustainable endeavors are often labeled green. So what's happening in Bermuda around the green initiatives? Well, let's talk about a couple of things first. I can share some news around some physical initiatives and some news as well around financial initiatives. Actually, Michelle, we've already talked a bit about our success in nurturing and sustaining our sea turtle population. And at times, the other side of success poses its own challenges because our boisterously robust sea turtle population has an appetite for seagrass. I'm very pleased to announce that a significant government-led and community-supported effort to restore and protect Bermuda's extremely valuable seagrass is underway. And that's only one of the initiatives that government and individual citizens and community groups in Bermuda are focused on, not just for Earth Day, not just for 2021, but across time to make sure that the, the island remains beautiful, that its biodiversity remains robust, and that the treasures we've been handed off to a next generation. 
we're also engaged in a set of less physical immediately because financial impacts indirectly promote the physical impacts. I've mentioned already that Bermuda, I hope, is quite proud of its half a century of leadership in financial services, particularly in reinsurance. The roots of Bermuda's reinsurance leadership are in a significant climate-driven risk event, Hurricane Andrew, which devastated Florida in 1992. Shortly after that event, new capital, but importantly, new business ideas, new technology-driven approaches to an old industry emerged in Bermuda and, to summarize, conquered the world. The Bermuda reinsurance market went from a standing start to a broad and global relevance in just a couple of years by bringing new technologies, new approaches, and new human capital to a very old industry reinsurance. Now we're looking at a new frontier, the world of climate risk finance. It is the adjacent vertical. No market, no regulator, no population of human talent understands how climate risk resides on a financial services balance sheet better than those constituencies in Bermuda. We can take our strengths, our, our track record, and our leadership and extend it into climate risk, partly because in the wind at our back includes this growing awareness of how significant the challenges are. But the other side of challenge is opportunity, and no culture has embraced that ethos better than Bermuda over its four centuries of adventure. Well put. And I like the fact that you also touch on the blue economy, and I'd just like to pause and have another historical reference here, that the women actually exceeded the maritime economy in the 1730s through the bonnet boom where Queen Anne took the bonnets into high fashion. The women on the island had industry that involved the elderly, the disabled, the children, where they were using the resources on the island to create ropes and baskets because it was a maritime community. But the bonnets ended up being the big selling point that was really great. To quote a frequent visitor from another century, Mark Twain said, throw off the bow line, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sail, sails, explore, dream and discover, which sounds like what you're talking about with this new initiative to move into an adjacent vertical of climate risk. And who better position for that? Uh, a lot of people don't realize how central Bermuda was for the space exploration. I was around at ACE when they were under reinsuring satellites and I had a chance to broach the Fortune 500 when they were providing DNO in a gap and excess liability in a gap. So Bermuda has always nicely pivoted into these uncharted waters and said, hey, let's figure out how to do that. So in terms of the blue economy, right on our doorstep, we have this golden rainforest with the Sargasso Sea, an ocean within an ocean, which is so rich in biodiversity in that. So it's been looking seaward to develop its blue economy. Absolutely. At the BDA, we've been deeply involved in an initiative called the Blue Ocean Prosperity Initiative. And you're right, we stand at the cusp of great wealth. But I think Bermuda also understands, I think broadly, that that's a shared resource, that there are opportunities for Bermuda and Bermudians to prosper, but that the best strategies will involve alignment and collaboration and custodianship of these resources, which are on our doorstep. Now, Michelle, you also touched on something quite interesting, too, that Bermuda's prosperity has always been founded by adventures and a willingness to move into the unknown with real confidence. And whether it was the maritime adventures of the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries or the financial courage that Bermuda has shown in this century to tackle things that others were afraid of and to do it thoughtfully, to do it with science and to do it with data, that served Bermuda well as a pioneer satellite coverage. It served it well as it led the world in hurricane and flood and wildfire protection. We are absolutely the best place to invest in and try to provide new solutions and new innovation for what is sadly the rapidly accelerating climate-related risks that we face the world over. But Bermuda has always been brave, and the companies that have set up shop in Bermuda embraced and expanded that ethos, and I'm really confident we can do it again. And it's a brilliant incubator as well. We have some brilliant minds on three or four square blocks, <laughs> well now working from home or in sheltering in place. 
So this podcast is reaching global leadership across 13 countries and 13 cities, according to my statistics today. It's a great opportunity to share some initiatives, but also some of your thought leadership philosophies. What's your compass for the future, Steve? Where's your true north? Well, for me personally, we're fortunate to live at a time when the challenges that we face are really coming into resolution. The path before us is clear, whether as citizens or as business leaders, as investors or as parents, I strongly believe we've got to face squarely and honestly the existential climate risk that we face as a civilization and as custodians of this earth. More that we can align our own activities, but importantly, our business strategies with the realities of climate risk and the challenges and opportunities that adaptation poses, the better off you are. We'll all look back with pride if we can contribute in our own ways to reducing risk and fostering the transition that we need. And it's the best way to make a buck in this coming era as well. It's the best way to recruit talent to your organization. It's the best way to inspire your teams and recruit new people. And it's the best way to address the enormous set of opportunities. I think a few decades back, I heard, which is really quite wise, I'm just repeating it, that firms in organizations, whether government or private, that didn't recognize that they were in the technology business were doomed to failure. We were all technology companies, whether we knew it or not. That's true today now. We're all climate companies. Everyone's strategy is impacted by climate risk. And whether your recognition moment was the wildfires of recent years or the disruption in your supply chains from tropical storms in a place you weren't aware you were actually doing business, now that data is in front of you. But awareness is empowering, and we can all jump on this in our way, in a way that makes sense, in a way that utilizes our own strengths, and be a part of the solutions. When we do that, we're going to look back with a lot of pride at what we accomplished. I totally agree with you. And with the way technology is going, our lifespans could be going out to about 130. So I can tell you, stopping on a dime and deciding to do my doctorate at 50 was not a hard choice when it was pointed out to me, I might have another 80 years ahead of me. And it was like, what do I want to be when I grow up? There could be a couple of new decades ahead of me. Who knew I'd offer out to podcasts, but it's the lay of the land can be changing. If you realize your children, grandchildren could be around for 130 years, and you may have multiple decades more past 70 than you realize, I think you think differently when you have that perspective sitting on your dashboard. You're not quite so quick not to be considering what you can do to make a difference, even if it's just recycling or educating someone, having a conversation, sharing stories, or even your values around what you believe in. And people and planet are very much highly valued by me as well as intergenerational collaborations. I think it's extremely important to have those conversations. Like one regret I have of our current moment is the degree to which many of us are retreated into our silos. And you can live in an information silo or, or try to live in a conversation silo. Some of the challenges we face and the climate-related challenges we face, I'll tell you with high conviction that I think this is true, really requires an all-hands-deck approach. We've got to do our best to try to bring everyone along, and we're not going to do that unless we engage with them. People have their own perspectives, their own set of data that is in front of them, their own set of biases, and uh, including ourselves. I never learn anything, actually, when I'm talking. You can only learn things when you're listening and receiving. That's true of everyone else. The, the more that we can engage and share our perspectives and make transparent what our own values are, the better off that we're going to be. In general, people want to act out of benevolent self-interest. They care about their futures, the futures of the circles around them, their families. And by empowering people with information that they trust, uh, we can all try to move together. And we have to move together in different ways. The next step doesn't look the same for everyone. Some of this is going to be actually picking up a piece of uh, material trash and recycling. Some of it, it's going to be an ESG-themed investment. Some of it's going to be a vote with a leader that aligns with your longer-term values. It's going to be different for everyone, and sometimes it's going to be all of the above, but every little step matters. And I think to that sense of when the challenges are vast, what I do doesn't matter is a barrier to overcome because it's not true. 
everything matters when you multiply by a million. And we multiply by a million by taking the action and sharing our example. And a flower sets off a thousand blooms. Oh, absolutely. And I really well said, I've always felt it's so important to have the conversations, allow the thoughts to ripple out and speak your truth, even if it's to power that's not quite ready to hear it. (laughs) But it's so important because we lead by example. I mean, I had the opportunity to be in boardrooms in the late 80s and early 90s when I was the only woman on the ground and juggling four kids and parenting by text and all those sorts of things. I've had a heart for diversity and inclusion because there's a lot of strength, wisdom and hope in the wisdom traditions and ancient thought and institutional history that's so important to be collected and so applicable because we're mapping out this new reality with COVID at the moment with these novel unique risks working out how do we manage this stay connected stay social stay environmentally aware Well, something that I've heard consistently, Michelle, from as I have conversations with executives in the C-suite over the last several months are on climate strategies and climate communications. They're hearing it from both sides of an extreme. To their surprise, members of boards of directors are wise counselors. And a very important role a director can play is to help a management team peer around the corner to the next challenge. I think a number of executives have been surprised by the degree that the boards as a whole and individual directors have been prodding them to think about longer term and medium term climate risk and to embrace both strategies and communications. So they're hearing it from their wise counselors and they're hearing it from their young talent. I've been hearing this a real repetition that young employees, newly recruited talent have bravely been raising their voice, whether in company texts or virtual meetings or, or physical meetings for those companies are having them and asking about the climate strategy from the newly hired to the senior directors. It's coming across the spectrum. And I think that's part of what's been inspiring a new impetus to action in C-suites, particularly in the Bermuda market, but it's broader than that. Again, every company today is a climate risk company. And if you don't know it, you're going to know it soon. Oh, absolutely. And Bermuda has been watched for centuries because of our well-proven history and agility in the marketplace. And I would speak because ageism is something that I, as a woman and as a woman of a certain age, I've seen a fair bit of this, just have the wow factor by referring to things that happened in the 80s and 90s, where most of the conversation has been around this century. And I'm like, this is not new. This has all happened before. It's cyclical. Well, with reinsurance, it can be anti, it can go the other way and we don't always think about it. As I said, we're sort of mapping out this new reality, but what was your earliest memory as a leader being attracted to climate change? Well, let's decompile that into two parts. I think I've always had a personal interest in climate, but in my youth, given my own age, I've crested north of 50. I think in the vernacular of those days, pollution, the ozone layer issues in the U.S., burning rivers of my youth, in the reality that many of those problems were solved, they weren't intractable. We were able to reduce pollution and restore many environments and reduce the amount of certain types of particulates which are in the air over the communities that I grew up in. As a leader, we began to encounter climate issues with a range of public policy initiatives that were encouraging moral hazard. It's not well known, Michelle, but the enormous subsidies in the United States and Europe, jurisdictions around the world, lurking in the insurance market to promote development along our coastal regions, along our rivers, in areas that are prone to drought, because they're subsidies for insurance. They make construction cheaper in places where it ought to be expensive, where the price signal ought to tell you that's a dangerous place to build. 
that's an uneconomical place to plant crops that depend upon a lot of water. But by providing stealth subsidies through the insurance mechanism, we provide a lot of bad subsidies for bad behavior, mostly unknowing. So that linkage between business strategies that we had to reduce the cost of operating, when you tell people to build in plywood on sand dunes and then try to require cheap insurance, it's an intractable business challenge. If you allow the price mechanic and the actuarial mechanic to tell people through the price signal, that ought to be expensive because it's dangerous. In the way that we've empowered the auto market to motivate safety with better signals, red convertibles driven by people with an act, a record of accidents drive a certain type of insurance premium. Safe cars with all the safety features driven people who've never had an accident deserve a different type of premium. But by masking that signal with building practices, we're sending the wrong signals. We're telling people to build where it's dangerous. We're telling you to plant where you shouldn't. And it's, it's quite destructive. So that intersection between a set of really important business imperatives and our long-term climate needs became very inspiring for me and also quite daunting because we shouldn't kid ourselves. These challenges are large, but we also shouldn't be afraid because they can be addressed. We've had a number of success stories and success breeds success. And the more that you move forward, even in small steps, the more you feel motivated and able to take the next one and to make the next step a little bit bigger. Wow, a lot of wisdom in those statements. So Steve, as we're starting to wrap up, what is the one thing you're always optimistic about? Always optimistic that we can do great things together. And Bermuda as an island has always succeeded in collaboration. The industry that, Michelle, you and I have spent a lot of time in is, by definition, a collaborative industry. And it helps give you that behavioral model to move ahead with partners, to bring people together, to identify common ground, and to push on a door that wants to open. I find that more fun. I find it more exciting. I find the outcomes to be more significant. Climate's going to require that. But I think our industry, our country, and our circles of social contact are really well positioned to do this because we've always preferred a collaborative model. And as I said, we have small scale success stories to point to and that inspire us to tackle the bigger successes I know lie in front of us. Yes, that is for sure. You're in your first year at BDA. What are you most proud of? What are the outcomes that you really want to celebrate? Thank you for asking that, Michelle. What I'm most proud of in this first year is something I hadn't expected to be proud of. I'm extremely proud of how the BDA contributed to Bermuda's resilience across the pandemic. So that's not the challenge I signed on to tackle because none of us foresaw this 18 months ago. But I'm grateful to Bermuda's government for the transparency and focus on life safety with which it's led across this era. I'm grateful for the BDA's team, which pulled together in these virtual environments in which we now work to make a real difference in how Bermuda navigated the pandemic and maintained its economic prosperity, invested in the future while managing the crisis. And I'm especially proud of our community. There are always ripples around the edges, but by and large, Bermudians pull together as a community to look after each other and mostly do the right thing. I think we can forgive ourselves our sins on the margin, and we have been pulling through this, and we will pull through this. As we put the pandemic in the rearview mirror, and we're going to, proud when we forge ahead to tackle and develop and grow new opportunities for Bermuda and Bermudians. I'm excited about our climate risk finance initiative. I'm excited about promoting Bermuda as the ideal location to beta test. I'm excited about continuing to support our world-beating reinsurance market and all the other success sectors which have made Bermuda successful. I also know that we will do at least one thing that I have never heard of because the team at the BDA are young, engaged, and creative, and we are going to push the envelope, and I'm just going to be proud to be associated with them and to cheer them on. It takes all types and all complexities, so they're very blessed to have you at the helm, and having met some of your team, you are well supported with some very hands-on, bright Bermudians behind you as well. So just as we wrap up, what last words would you have around Earth Day, Steve? 
let's make Earth Day every day. Again, in all of our actions, our investing decisions, our spending decisions, the way that we vote, the way that we manage our lives. Given the scale of the challenge we face, we have to make this something that affects as many of our behaviors as we can. Choose to work for a company which shares your values, whether the DEI values, but hopefully also your ESG values as well. Think about using the power of your person way to send a message. And again, communicate, ask questions, poke holes at the areas where you have doubts or want to know more. But it's just imperative that we confront these issues 365 days a year, not just one. But Earth Day is just so inspiring. Take a pause, look around you, turn something off that draws some power, enjoy the air and water around you, and call a friend and tell them you care about them and you hope that they're doing the same. If this runs on Earth Day, let me wish all of you a very, very happy Earth Day and joyous ones to come. Join us on this adventure. And if you can, visit Bermuda, safe, clean, close, and beautiful. And I hope to see you here at the adventure. Dr. Michelle St. Jane is a conscious steward of meaningful leadership in the world and the wider cosmos. Tune in every Thursday for real talk around life, leadership, and your conscious journey. Be ready to create and cultivate your dreams and soul-hearted desires. Your support is valued. Please subscribe. Leave a review and a rating. But more importantly, share with your connections.